For those of you who have your Bibles, we're going to be in Matthew chapter 5 today. Matthew chapter 5, and in a few minutes we'll be starting in verse 33. Last week we began to see how the Sermon on the Mount reveals two big things. Really who God is and who we are. And the shocking contrast between God's goodness and holiness and our complete depravity. The the fact and truth that we have no hope of measuring up to God's standards. But the great news is that we don't have to. Jesus has been the standard for us. He's been the standard for us. The Sermon on the Mount destroys the lie that we can be good enough people on our own to not need God. The more we see and understand of God, the more we love him as we understand what he's done for us. It's been well said that the distance between God and us is so vast that it's like all of us attempting to swim to Hawaii. You might start the swim and be looking around you thinking, man, these people are dropping like flies. Guess they don't have what it takes. You might swim several miles further than somebody else. And you might look at other people and think, I'm doing really good compared to them. But the point is, nobody is swimming to Hawaii. Nobody is making it there. And that's what this is like, the distance between us and God. So when we say, I think the only thing that matters is that I'm a good person. The problem is you're creating the standard by comparing yourself to someone else when God is the standard and nobody is reaching that standard based on their own goodness. We need saving. We need a savior. And the Sermon on the Mount reminds us that we're lost. We're hopeless without the grace of Jesus. And that's why we're so thankful for the grace of Jesus. Let's dig into the text. Matthew 5, verse 33. Jesus continues unpacking the Old Testament law and revealing the heart behind it. He says, again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform your oaths to the Lord. But I say to you, do not swear at all, neither by heaven, for it is God's throne, nor by the earth, for it is his footstool, nor by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Nor shall you swear by your head, because you cannot make one hair white or black. But let your yes be yes, and your no, no. For whatever is more than these... Is from the evil one. Now, Jesus isn't saying that all oaths are evil and bad. We, we know this because among other biblical examples, God swore an oath to Abraham. And Jesus himself actually spoke under oath when he was put on trial before the Sanhedrin. What Jesus is forbidding here is the flippant and careless use of oaths in everyday speech. At that time, in that culture, oaths were used to really deceive people and to make the victim believe the lie the Jews would swear by heaven or I swear by earth or I swear by Jerusalem or my my own head, but they wouldn't swear by God because they thought maybe I won't get judged if I don't bring God into this. But Jesus is saying, listen, all those things you're swearing by are all part of my creation, so it's corrupt, it's sin, everything's wrong. It's just like you're swearing in my name. And Jesus' solution is really simple. It's the first fill-in on your outline. All our speech should be as if we were under an oath to tell the truth. All our speech should be as if we were under an oath to tell the truth. The point Jesus is making is that you shouldn't need to say anything more than yes or no to be trusted and to be trustworthy. He says if you have to promise someone something in order for them to believe you, it means that you're living your life in a deceptive manner, that your simple word is not good enough. You have to add something to it. Jesus is saying, don't live that way. If you say you're going to do something, do it. If you promise something, keep it. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. He continues in verse 38. He says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. 
just to point this out to you, this legal system was called lex talionis. It's the law of retaliation. It's in Exodus 21. And the reason this law was given was to keep vigilantism in check. It was to make sure that violence didn't escalate. You know, you killed my brother, I'll kill two of your brothers to make sure that it didn't turn into something completely out of control. It stopped corrupt magistrates as well from assigning a punishment to a criminal that was greater than the crime. It was considered the most just form of punishment possible. What you do to another will be done to you. And it was designed to solve a matter as quickly as possible. See, God's concern with Lex Talionis was was keeping bitterness and vengeance out of his people's heart. So he wanted to deal with things as quickly and simply as possible. He wanted the consequence to be clear so there wouldn't be years for vengeance to store up or to give a disproportionate response and for evil to escalate. He wanted to keep bitterness and vengeance out of his people's heart, which is why he also said things in Leviticus in the Old Testament like, you shall not take vengeance nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Just as a side note, you'll notice that that capital punishment in the Bible was not only permitted, but it was actually insisted upon. That's a whole other different study, but I just wanted to point it out while we're there. Verse 39, Jesus goes on and says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. Now we need to unpack this because this can be taken in so many weird ways and lead to all kinds of weird behavior. Both this and the previous verse only deal with matters of personal retaliation, not criminal offenses or military acts of aggression. So Jesus is not saying somebody robs your house, you know, don't report it, just love them. He's not saying that at all. And he's not saying, oh, you know, a bad guy invades your country. Don't fight him. You know, just turn the other cheek. He's not saying that at all. He's speaking about matters of personal retaliation and evil. He's saying if somebody slanders you, uh, somebody causes you trouble that's not criminal. He says, don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in retaliation and vengeance. It's only matters of personal retaliation or else if, you t- if it applied to everything, criminals would get away with everything. Evil would be running rampant on the earth. Nobody would have stopped Hitler if they had taken the extreme view and we're glad they did. Jesus applied this principle of non-retaliation uh, to affronts against one's dignity. So somebody disses you basically, verbally slanders you. He applied this uh, non-retaliation to lawsuit, lawsuits to gain one's personal assets. This is very difficult. Infringements on one's liberty. So he even says in, in countries where, where people are stealing your rights, he says, you know, the answer is not to pick up your weapon and fight them back. And violations of property rights. Jesus is calling for a, a full surrender of personal rights. And I can't lie to you, this is a very Very difficult passage, very difficult. One of the most difficult in the Bible because what's the line between being foolish and irresponsible versus allowing the Lord to fight your battles for you? Where's that line? I I don't know. I really don't know. You and I need to be led by the Holy Spirit in these situations because every situation is unique. Sometimes the Lord may call you to fight and say this is not a moment for this and sometimes he may call you not to. But the, the answer for me is not to simply lower the text and lower the standard so that we can all feel better about ourselves. 
I think what we do need to take away from this is that when we're personally attacked in a legal or slanderous manner, we should stop and seek the Lord first. We should stop and seek the Lord first. A friend of mine posted a great quote on Facebook. He said, it's much easier to act like a Christian than to react like a Christian. I thought that was really, really good. Uh, it, it's sometimes easy to be proactive, but when we're put on the moment, when put on the spot, when somebody pushes the right button, when they just you know poke us in the side in a way we don't like, suddenly it's a reaction, and we don't even have time to filter it through the Holy Spirit. It just goes straight from the brain to the mouth instead of brain, Holy Spirit, and usually not to the mouth after it's gone through the Holy Spirit. But it's very, very hard to react like a Christian. And so I think for us, when we're personally attacked in a legal or slanderous manner, at a minimum, we have to stop and seek the Holy Spirit first. And this can be very hard in a Western culture where we're so used to mantras about our own rights. I know my rights. I know my freedoms. I know my rights. You can go on YouTube and there's videos even of idiotic drunk people doing things. And they're still saying in their drunken stupor, I know my rights. You know, we saw one and the cop had to explain, well, despite your rights, you can't drive a, a genie lift down the side of a highway sitting on a six pack of beer. You can't you can't do that. It doesn't apply in this situation. I know my rights. So there's something in us, especially in a Western culture where our go to response is just I've been I've been violated. I know my rights. I know my rights. Rather than saying, listen, just as we said in the in the giving talk this morning, Jesus owns all of us. So in those moments, we go to him because in those moments, we're still his. And we have to ask him, Father, as your son, as your daughter, how do you want me to handle this situation? What do you want me to do here? And in some situations, God will say, no, no, I need you to, to stand up for yourself in this situation. And in other situations, he might say, let him have it. Just give it to him. Let him have it. It all belongs to the Lord. We have to ask the question, how do you want me to manage my stuff and myself in this situation? Because it, it really belongs to you, God. Very difficult text. He goes on and he says, but whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. If anyone wants to sue you and take away your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And whoever compels you to go one mile, go with him too. Give to him who asks you. And from him who wants to borrow from you, do not turn away. If you lived in Jesus' day, a Roman soldier could come up to you at any time and tap you on the shoulder with a spear. You would literally have to drop what you're doing and carry his armor like his shield and, and, and his baggage that he would have with him. You'd have to carry it for him for one mile. It was a right of Roman soldiers. And Jesus says, when someone does that to you, go with them two miles because they expect you to go the one mile. You're compelled to go the one mile. He says, do more than you have to. And the reason is simple. That soldier is going to ask him, why would you do that? Why would you do that? Which opens up an opportunity for them to share what Jesus has done for them and the burden that Jesus carried for each of us. And I've often wondered how much of these words of Jesus were, were philosophical and how much was strategic. You, you know, the, the moments where Christianity begins to become messed up is when it fuses with government. And you can go back and study this in history. You have guys like Constantine who establish um, Christianity as the legal mandated religion in the Roman Empire. And it just doesn't work because you can't use law to make people love God. You can't. It just doesn't work that way. 
And so I think Jesus gave some of these instructions because he said, I, I never want Christianity to become a military movement. I never want Christianity to become an armed movement or else it's going to be something people can fight against. There have been multiple people throughout history that have discovered that what Jesus was saying was potent and dynamic, that turning the other cheek actually puts the victim in control in many situations. The whole subcontinent of India was freed from British rule because Gandhi read this verse, and although he's not a believer, he believed in what Jesus said. He inspired a whole nation to turn the other cheek, and the British didn't, literally didn't know what to do about it. They didn't know how to respond. I mean, what can you do if someone won't fight back? And then there's famous stories of them beating Gandhi and the other people who were with them with clubs, knocking them unconscious, firing guns at them, but they, they just wouldn't stop. They just kept coming peacefully. And eventually what happens is the morale of the army is just destroyed. You're just destroyed when someone doesn't fight back. And eventually the British got on their ships and sailed home. It's amazing. Martin Luther King Jr. found the same thing to be true when he mobilized African Americans in Alabama during the Civil Rights Movement. And if the protesters had fought back in a militant manner, the U.S. Marshals would have felt completely justified shooting back at them, and it would have been a military issue. But peaceful resistance won out, and the country's dramatically changed. And if you've ever lashed out at somebody who refused to fight back, you know how small it makes you feel. Makes you feel pretty pathetic in that moment. You don't feel victorious. So there are moments when the right decision is to not fight back. It's to love back because it disarms your enemy completely. Disarms your enemy completely. In your family, at work, in your neighborhood, wherever it might be, I'd encourage you to take the words of Jesus literally. Seek the counsel of the Holy Spirit. And live in a radical, radical way because sometimes not fighting back is exactly what puts you in control of the situation. The system of lex talionis is, is really about the punishment fitting the crime. It's the system you choose to live under when you try to meet God's standards on your own merits. Because you, you're saying, I want to receive exactly what I'm offering. I want to get the same thing back you will and have inevitably violated God's standards. You've disrespected God. You've rebelled against God. And so the question becomes, what is the appropriate punishment for dishonoring the King of Kings, the God Almighty of the universe? What, what would be an appropriate punishment for that? There's no crime more serious of that. Jesus came and saved us literally from Lex Talionis when he died in our place on the cross. And what Jesus is telling us is that we need to be very careful about demanding justice when we've received mercy from him. I see this in myself. When you're the victim, we all want justice. When we're the perpetrator, we all want mercy. None of us would demand justice from Jesus. None of us. None of us want justice from God, right? But when we're the victim, we can very quickly switch mindsets and allow our righteous indignation to, to make us hypocrites sometimes, where we need to be more forgiving and gracious. We have to figure out how to live this out, and it is very, very difficult. I can tell you emphatically that we are expected to forgive every single person who's ever wronged us, without exception. 
There are no conditions under which we're allowed to not forgive someone, ever. That's not a gray area. Should you be foolish and allow yourself to be repeatedly abused? Of, of course not. Use common sense and wisdom. Should you be willing to suffer unjustly sometimes? I asked Jesus. He did. He did. We have to walk that out somehow. How does this look in your life? Every situation's different. You've got to figure it out with God's spirit and God's word. But the solution for us, I don't think, is lowering it and pretending that the text says something that it doesn't really say. It's very difficult. It's very difficult. Verse 43, Jesus says, You have heard it said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies. I can't love that person. How do you expect me to do that? In the next verse, Jesus tells you how. You might want to underline some words here. You might want to underline bless. Bless those who curse you. And then underline do good to those who hate you. And pray. Underline pray for those who spitefully use you and persecute you. Speak blessing over them. Do good to them. Pray for them. Why? Will it, will it change them? Maybe. Maybe not. But it will change you. It'll change you. And that's the whole point. We're on a journey to become more like Jesus. The only person in this journey is you and Jesus. It's you and Jesus. And we're trying to become more like him. When you pray for someone, it reminds you that they're a person. They're a lost member of God's family who's precious to Jesus. They are more than just the offense that they've committed against you. When you pray for someone, you remember that they're a spirit, they're a spiritual being that is going to spend eternity in one of two places. And when you realize that, things start changing. Your perspective starts changing. They're not a terrible person. They're a person deeply under the influence of Satan. And we want to see them freed from that, ultimately. Write this down. When you speak blessing, when you do good, when you pray for a person, the hate will begin to dissipate. I was really pleased with that one. That is great rhyming right there. The hate will begin to dissipate. The hate will dissipate. You'll live free and you'll be reminded, just as we said, you're not in a war with a person. You're in a spiritual war with the powers of darkness. Satan loves to get us caught up in battles with people and forget that we're really in conflict with him. And if he can get us to believe that we're fighting people, he's already won a lot of the battle. Verse 45, Jesus says, here's why you need to do that. That you may be sons of your Father in heaven. For he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Our heavenly Father expects us to show love and kindness even to our enemies because he wants us to be a reflection of his character. He wants us to be a reflection of his character. And in Romans, the Apostle Paul says this. This is on your outlines. There's some things you want to underline here too. Paul said it like this. For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Yet perhaps for a good man, someone would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were still sinners, underline that, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, and then underline this, when we were enemies, we were reconciled. When we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son. 
Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. God didn't hold back his love and kindness toward us based on our behavior. That's why he expects us to show kindness to others even when it's undeserved, because he did that for us. We're his kids and we should bear the stamp of his character on our lives. Since he is loving and gracious and generous, even to those who are his enemies, we should be too. Jesus also expects us to be so radical about living for him that nothing gets in the way. That means even when we are horribly wronged, we have to remember that his word says our bodies, our being is a temple of God. And because of that reality, we cannot allow things like unforgiveness, bitterness, and anger to live in us, the temple of God, because God is in us. We can't bring that stuff into our lives. And the only way to avoid that is to deal radically with being wronged. We have to forgive because of what unforgiveness does to us. It poisons us more than it poisons the other person. I've I've heard it said like this, unforgiveness is like drinking poison and expecting the other person to die. That's what unforgiveness is like. You're not keeping them in prison, you're keeping yourself in prison. And the sad truth is most of the time they don't fall asleep at night thinking about how they've wronged you. But you fall asleep every night thinking about how they wronged you. You're the one in prison. Jesus says, I I don't want you to live like that. Verse 46, Jesus says, For if you love those who love you, what reward have you? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? And if you greet your brethren only, what do you do more than others? Do not even the tax collectors do so? Very simple concept. Jesus is saying you're you're not doing anything special if you're only kind to people who are kind to you. Even people who don't know God do that. That's just common sense. What is interesting here is you might remember that tax collectors at this time in Israel were the worst of the worst. They were generally Jews who had bought a tax franchise from the ruling Roman Empire. And when buying that tax franchise and paying that fee, they were legally allowed basically to steal from the populace under the guise of taxation. So you would be a Jew who had made a deal with an occupying enemy empire to cheat your own people. So you would have been ostracized from your own people. You would have been viewed as a backstabber, as a traitor, as the the prime example, as Jesus does here, of just an awful, terrible, horrible person. You know what's interesting is whose gospel are we in right now? We're in Matthew's gospel. Matthew, who was Levi, whose occupation was tax collector. Tax collector. So it had to be awkward for Matthew. Do not even the tax collectors do that? Yeah, those guys are awful, man, you know. But it's an interesting tidbit because I think it speaks to the credibility of Matthew's account in the gospel. We've talked before about how he was skilled in the art of tachigraphy, the the ancient art of shorthand, where he could write something down verbatim very quickly using symbols and notation. Matthew is so faithful to what Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that he makes note even of an archetype, an example that is completely at his own expense. And this is one of the reasons you can trust the Gospels. Jesus goes on and says, Therefore, you shall be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. This is the big indictment of the Sermon on the Mount in one sentence. You shall be perfect, just as your Father is perfect. You want to know what the standard is? What's a good person? Here's a good person. Be perfect, 
just as your Father in heaven is perfect. He sets an unattainable standard, which is what the law demanded. And though this standard is impossible for us to meet, God couldn't lower it without compromising His own perfection. He couldn't say, you know know what? I'm holy and righteous, but I love you, so I'm going to become unholy and unrighteous and just lower the standard, and, and that'll be how we get through this. He who is perfect could not set an imperfect standard of righteousness. That's why it's such good news that Jesus met the standard on our behalf. But I want you to write this down. I believe that this verse is also a promise. It's also a promise. Romans 8.29 is a verse that blows my mind every time I read it. The Apostle Paul wrote this speaking of our Heavenly Father. Paul writes, For whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brethren. This verse to me is so incredible. It's talked about so little because what it's actually saying some of our first reactions would probably be that's blasphemous because what this verse is saying is so incredible. Paul is saying that the Father knew and he knows every person who's going to choose to respond to the gospel and follow him, every person who's going to be his. He knows the decision every person is going to make and the destiny that he has set for each person is to become like Jesus. He's not saying that's, that's the goal. He's saying that is what will happen. Every person who follows Christ will ultimately become like him. And the idea, he says, is that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brethren. So the idea is that when Jesus came back from the dead in his resurrected body, Paul is saying the intent is that he would simply be the first to become like that, a resurrected body, a glorified state, that he would have an entire family like that. What's staggering about this, I've shared it this way before, is that when we get to heaven, right now there's this massive discrepancy between us and God. It's like comparing the aurora borealis to dirt, a puddle of mud. Like that's the gap, and that's not even close to what the gap is between the glory of God and us. But when we are in our resurrected bodies, when we're in the presence of God, if someone were to look at you and look at Jesus, they would say they're in the same family, clearly. That's the destiny that awaits everyone who follows Christ. And it blows my mind. In Philippians 1.6, Paul says this. He says, he who has begun a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. So this process of becoming like Jesus that has begun right now, it's going to be complete one day. You will actually get there one day. You will become like Jesus one day. That's why I love it. I believe it's a promise. When you read it, I hope it encourages you now when Jesus says, you shall be perfect. You will be perfect, just as your Father in heaven is perfect. It's a promise that he's going to keep In Luke's gospel, he says this in Luke 6. He says, but if you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what credit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you hope to receive back, what credit is that to you? For even sinners lend to sinners to receive as much back. But love your enemies, do good, and lend, hoping for nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the unthankful and evil. Therefore, be merciful, just as your Father 
also is merciful. I love what Paul says in Romans 12. He says, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him a drink. For in doing so, you will heap coals of fire on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. The idea of coals of fire on his head is just when someone was in mourning or in grief or desired to show that they were ashamed of something, they would put ashes from a fire on their head. I know it's a weird look, but they would do that. What Paul is saying, he's saying, listen, when you show undeserved kindness, especially to someone who's been unkind to you, he said, in the most righteous way possible, you shame them. You heap conviction upon them. You make it even more difficult for them to continue down the path of evil when you do that. And it's true. It's 100% true. Uh, Don't you just feel more awful when you're just terrible to somebody and they're kind back to you? Oh, there's been situations where I've been like, could could you just punch me? It would make me feel better. Would you just punch me? The worst one, I remember when I was 16, I was at one of my rebellious stages. And I'd done something, and, and I got home from this drive where my mom had picked me up from somewhere. And I'm like, so, you know, what's my punishment? And my mom just goes, you know, I'm not going to punish you. At some point, you just got to decide who you want to be. That's horrible. I was like, you sick woman. Who does that, you know? You know, hit me like a normal person or something like that. It was brutal. And it, it absolutely worked, and it works. In Romans, Paul also reminds us that the goodness or kindness of God leads us to repentance. The goodness of God leads us to repentance. Just before Judas Iscariot betrayed him, Jesus washed the feet of Judas. He washed his feet. He showed kindness and mercy to the man who would betray him. And on the cross, among the last words of Christ before his death, Jesus said of his murderers, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. Even as he's dying, Jesus is showing mercy. And these ideas taught here by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount are still radical. They're still radical today. They haven't got any tamer. They're just as radical as the love that he has for us. We're going to shift gears and keep going into chapter 6, verse 1. Jesus just continues speaking, even though there's a division of chapters here. He continues on. He says, take heed that you do not do your charitable deeds before men to be seen by them. Otherwise, you have no reward from your Father in heaven. Therefore, when you do a charitable deed, do not sound a trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, that they may have glory from men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. In the area of praying and and fasting and giving, Jesus will talk about the hypocrites or the, the hypocrites. Hypocrites is a Greek word that means mask wearer. The hypocrites or hypocrites, I'm sure I'm butchering the translation. It's Greek, so I could really say it however I want, and you'd be like, you know Greek? That's amazing. So we'll just call them hypocrites. They were the actors in Greek theater who would wear these masks. You've probably seen them that have exaggerated facial expressions on them. And it would be so that you could see the expression the character had all the way from the back in the amphitheater, basically. This is where we get the word two-faced from, is a person is two-faced. They're wearing one face, but there's really another face behind it. And Jesus said, don't be hypocritical in your giving. Don't put on a show when there's really something else going on behind the scenes. So how did the hypocrites give? Well, originally there was an area at the side of the temple courtyard called the Chamber of the Secret. 
people would go there and they would drop gifts designated for the poor in a large chest that was called the trumpet. And then later the poor would come to the chamber of the secret and receive gifts from the trumpet. This is all done very discreetly with humility and honesty. But as the years went on, the Pharisees decided it just wasn't practical to go all the way to the temple to give alms to the poor. So instead, this is crazy, they tied a small brass or silver trumpet to their belts. Then whenever they wanted to give to the poor, they would stand on a street corner and blow their tiny trumpet. And upon hearing this, all the poor people in the area would gather around the generous Pharisee as he gave out his alms with great flourish, while everyone said, look how generous this man is. So that's all they'd give. They'd go to a street corner and, da, 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 you know, and then everyone would come around and he'd be like, alms for the poor, giving away alms for the poor, just me, that I might be seen by God and everyone else. So he called them hypocrites because they didn't give out of their concern for the poor, but that other people would see them and be impressed with them. The principle is this, if you want a reward from man, God will pass. God will pass. You've got your reward. If you want your reward from God, then do it for God. Do it for God. And if you're doing it for God, he's the only person that needs to see you doing it. He's the only person who needs to see you doing it. We all love a pat on the back, especially when we're doing something that we don't really want to do. But God wants us to learn to get our approval and encouragement from him in those moments. That's the heart behind this. He's saying, listen, I need you to learn how to live and sacrifice for me and have my approval of you be encouragement enough. He's saying, you've still got a ways to go when you're like, thanks God, but I'm looking for something a little more tangible like a person. So I'm gonna go and share what I did with someone and hope that I can get a compliment from them. Verse 3 continues, but when you do a charitable deed, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, that your charitable deed may be in secret, and your father who sees in secret will himself reward you openly. You'll notice Jesus doesn't say if you do a charitable deed, but when you do a charitable deed. And the assumption is that believers are going to be generous people. That's just the assumption of Jesus here in charitable giving and in service when they have the opportunity to do so. The only question is how are Christians going to do it? Secretly or openly for the praise of others or for the praise of God? And also have to point out here, I have to because I'm a pastor, that Jesus is not saying, hey, you know what? Do this instead of tithing. Go give money to poor people instead of tithing. The expectation that Jesus will point to repeatedly is give to each person what they're due. Pay your taxes to the government. Give your tithe to the house of God, to the church. But then be generous as you have the opportunity to do so. The idea is continuing to view everything you have as belonging to the Lord. And in every situation saying, God, is there something you want me to do here? God, what do you want me to do here? We're going to shift gears big time now and move into what's known as the Lord's Prayer In verse 5, Jesus begins to speak about prayer, and he says, And when you pray, you shall not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray, standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. The Pharisees had designated 9 o'clock in the morning, noon, and 3 o'clock in the afternoon as times of prayer when they would gather in synagogues and pray together. But they weren't praying to seek God, but rather to be seen by men. And how do we know this? Because on their way to prayer meetings, the Pharisees would stop on street corners and begin to offer loud, long, verbose prayers. And in doing so, they were were trying to say, 
I'm so eager to pray. I, I just can't wait to get to the synagogue. God, you are so great. That's what they would do. And people would say, wow, look how righteous this guy is. He can't even wait to get to church. This is just amazing. Jesus says in verse six, but you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you have shut your door, pray to your father who is in the secret place. And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. And when you pray, do not use vain repetitions as the heathen do. This is like, don't chant and think that that does anything. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. We think, oh, that's so stupid. We still all believe that. We still all believe that. So often we think like, man, I need to pray. But I mean, we all know God doesn't really start listening till you get to like a thousand words. That's really where he tunes in, right? Before that, he's like, I don't think you're serious. You're only at 830 words. Let me know when you mean business. A thousand words. Okay, now I'm interested. You have my attention. But Jesus encourages us to be short and concise in our prayers. To me, this is so freeing. It's such an encouragement because I always think, still, the longer I pray, the more God will be impressed with me. So I need to expand my vocabulary so I can be long-winded. But in Ecclesiastes 5, King Solomon wrote this. He says, God is in heaven. You are on earth. He says, remember that, let your words be few. <laughs> That's what Solomon says. He says, just keep perspective. He, he's God in heaven. He's the king of kings. You're, you're here on earth. Get to the point. Keep it short and sweet. We don't need to inform the Lord or convince the Lord. We do that all the time, don't we? I, I just need to inform God of the situation. Okay, God, there's this guy that I work with. His name's Steve. He's got three kids. As though God is like, oh, slow down, slow down. Steve. <laughs> Three kids. Okay, okay, keep going. What else? What else? You know? We just need to connect with the Lord. Or, or we view it as though this is like a legal argument. Well, you know, we've, we've got to win this argument. And, and Steve is, really has, he has cancer, God. And I'm wondering if you would help him. I've got three reasons why you should help him. You, uh, you, you'll be glorified if you do it. Uh, maybe I'll have a chance to share the gospel with him. Like we make an argument to God as though God's like, hmm, I'm 70%. Why don't you go brush up your case, come back to me, and we'll pick this up where we left off, you know? In verse 8, Jesus says, Therefore do not be like them. Underline this. For your Father knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. He knows the things you have need of before you ask Him. When my kid comes to me and says, Dad, can I please have some juice? He doesn't have to say, you know, there are multiple studies, Dad, that show that hydration is a key component to sustaining life. And I've been monitoring my fluid intake today, and I'm running a deficit. So we're going to have some health issues if I don't hydrate soon. Would you, would you get me some juice? He's like, I know, because he knows I know. I know he needs juice. He just says, can I have some juice? And I love to hear him ask. I love to hear him ask. We train our kids to ask kindly. Because it helps them every time they ask and every time we get something small for them like that, it's a reminder. You have parents who love you, who will provide for you, who will care for you. And the same is true for God. Jesus is about to tell the disciples how to pray what we commonly refer to as the Lord's Prayer. And as far as we know, the disciples never asked Jesus to teach them how to preach. They never asked Jesus for advice on storytelling. They never asked Jesus how to cast out demons or how to prophesy how to worship or how to witness or how to build a ministry or even lead their families, they asked Jesus one thing. They said, Lord, 
teach us to pray, teach us to pray. Where they ask him, this is actually about two years later, it's documented in Luke 11. And the reason they do this is because after watching Jesus for several years, I believe the disciples were convinced that the prayer life of Jesus was the secret to everything in his life. They noticed that he got up before them every morning and he went and prayed. They noticed when he was wiped out, he retreated somewhere and prayed. And they began to put two and two together. And after a couple of years, they realized it's his prayer life. He has a prayer life like no one we've ever seen before. When he prays, he goes away from everyone in private. Who does this? And they knew that that's where his power came from. And the events of Luke 11 that happened about two years later are so interesting because when they ask him, teach us how to pray, Jesus gives them pretty much verbatim the Lord's Prayer again two years later. And why is that significant? Because Jesus doesn't say, well, okay, two years ago, you remember I gave you the the Lord's Prayer, my prayer. Well, you know, now that you're two years more into the faith, you're more mature, here's something more heavy duty for you. Here's something more weighty, something more theologically meaty. He just repeats the same thing as though he's saying, I told you how to pray like two years ago. Why, why are you asking me again? And like me, you've probably been taught that the Lord's Prayer is an example or a model that we can learn from and, and study. And that's true. It's a great model of, of what to pray and how to pray. And you can draw out themes from any of the lines in the Lord's Prayer and expand upon them yourself. But I think we can overemphasize that part, that it is a model so much that we miss out on the fact that it is powerful even when repeated verbatim. Most of us all all believe that memorizing Scripture is important. We probably all wish that we did more of it, that we had more memorized. And yet for, for most of us, we disregard one of the longest passages of Scriptures that I would wager most of us actually have memorized. Most of us could probably say the Lord's Prayer. It's very, very easy to pick up. Jesus warned, as we just read, against meaningless, repetitious prayer. So if you say the Lord's Prayer with your mind a million miles away and your heart not sensitive to the Spirit, it'll be meaningless, like any prayer. But if you concentrate, if you contemplate, if you meditate on what the words are that you're praying, it has a powerful effect, it does. It has that on me, and I believe it'll have it on you too. The Lord's Prayer is incredibly complete. It covers everything that you could possibly need to pray for all our needs and all of god's worthiness it's so concise it's only 65 words long and you can pray it in 30 seconds if i asked the lord to teach me to pray i would have thought that he would have given me like a couple of hundred page book at the very least this is how you pray good luck you know but instead he gives us 65 words that we can pray in 30 seconds Uh, There is a place for passionate, extended prayer and intercession, but I also think we need a readjustment when it comes to our daily prayer life. Solomon said, let your words be few. Jesus says, just get to the point. Pray for what you need. Be concise. You don't need to be long-winded. And many of us get so caught up in the idea that it needs to be long and extended that we end up doing nothing. We end up doing nothing. Well, I don't have 15 minutes to pray right now, so... You know, I don't want to offer God something cheap. We know how much he hates short prayers, which is something the Bible never, ever says. I'm glad to see my kids even for 30 seconds. I'm glad to see my kids, just to see them again. The Lord's Prayer can refocus you at any point in the day in just 30 seconds. It's a huge blessing. You're going to find that there's six elements to this prayer. The first one, you can write this down, is God's person. God's person. Jesus says this in verse 9. He says, in this manner, therefore, pray. And then he says, our Father. 
And he would have shocked his listeners when he says, you begin by addressing God as our Father, calling Him Father. They would have been shocked because he's referring to the Almighty God in heaven as the Hebrew word Abba, which means Papa. In the Old Testament, God is addressed as Elohim, the strong one, or El Shaddai, the mighty one, Yahweh, the unspeakable word that they wouldn't even write out in its completion, which means I am that I am. And here Jesus is saying, when you pray, call God Daddy. Call him Dad. Call him Father. Call him Abba. Was he no longer the the strong and mighty, unspeakable God of the Old Testament? No. Did God change? No. We changed. We changed. We became sons and daughters of God. In John 1, the Apostle John wrote, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believed in his name. We were adopted into the family of God. And if you're truly a child of God, he's still the strong one, the mighty one, the unspeakable one, but you've been adopted into his family, so he's also Abba. He's also Father. He's also Dad. And what a thought that as you pray the Lord's Prayer, you're praying the same words that believers have prayed for almost 2,000 years when they didn't know what else to pray. He continues, he says, Our Father in heaven. As my Father, I relate to him, but because he's in heaven, I'm reminded that he's God. He's somewhere higher than I am, and I reverence him. He says, Hallowed be your name. Can't remember the last time I used the, the word hallowed. Can't remember. It's a word that's been lost from our language because the concept has been lost from our lives. It has. The word hallowed just means to make holy, to make it separate, to make it transcendent. Jesus tells us to pray that God's name and honor and reputation would be rightly honored on the earth and everywhere else, especially in our lives. We're to pray that our lives would make much of Jesus and show him honor This is a reminder that our God is our Father, but He's also the one who's above all things and is worthy of honor. Second, notice not only God's person, but now also His purpose. You can write that down, His purpose. In verse 10, we pray, Your kingdom come, Your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. There's only two kinds of people, those who are in harmony with God's purposes, praying, Thy will be done, and those who live for themselves saying, my will be done. It's only two kinds of people. That's why we say there's, there's no such thing as a casual Christian. You can't love God and be praying, my will be done. You have to pray for his will to be done. We have a choice. We can either, as the psalmist says, be still and know that he's God. Or we can say, God, you be still and know that I'm me. Better recognize God is terrifyingly fair. If you say, my will be done, he'll say, all right, go for it. Do it your way. You don't want me? You can spend eternity without me. He's incredibly fair. He'll give you your way. In the Old Testament, we see a prophet named Isaiah go to a king named Hezekiah and say, Hezekiah, God wants you to know it's time for you to die. He loves you. He's given you a heads up. Get your affairs in order. You're going to die soon, which I think is, is a nice courtesy, you know. In the original text in Isaiah 38, it tells us that Hezekiah's response is he turns his face to the wall and shattered like a bird. Let me live, let me live, let me live. And finally God said, okay, your will be done. Hezekiah lives 15 more years and they're the 15 most tragic years of his life. During that time, he set the stage for Israel to be invaded by Babylon and he fathered a son named Manasseh who grew up to be the most wicked king in the history of Israel. 
15 more years. He would have been so much better simply praying, thy kingdom come, thy will be done, Father, on earth as it is in heaven. So do you pray in simplicity, Father, your will be done? Or do you pray with a demanding mentality, you listen to me, God, I want this. This is what I want. When we pray your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is fascinating. I wish I had more time to unpack this. But we are praying literally for Jesus to come to the earth, sit on the throne of David in Jerusalem, and literally rule the earth. That's, that's what we're praying for. We're praying for what the Bible tells us will happen in what's known as the millennial kingdom, which is described in Revelation 20. The period of time after the rapture of the church and the tribulation when Jesus returns to the earth with his church to do just that, to rule and reign, when his kingdom will come, his will will be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's what happens in the millennial kingdom. Jesus says, pray for that, long for that, long for the day when creation itself is redeemed. Third, we see God's provision, his provision. In verse 11, he says, give us. And you might want to underline us in verse 11. You'll notice Jesus doesn't pray, give me my bread, but he says, give us our bread. It's interesting to me, there are no singular pronouns in the Lord's Prayer. There are no singular pronouns in the Lord's Prayer. Jesus asked us to pray in a way that reminds us that other people have the same needs that we have. And so he says, as as you're praying for me and my Father to meet your daily needs, You can also pray that for every other believer. Use a collective term. He says, give us this day our daily bread. If I'm feeling tired today, I can pray, Lord, give us strength. God, give us hope when we're hopeless. Give us joy when we're down. Give us this day our daily bread. And you might want to underline the word daily. And the idea of daily bread is simply our daily needs. He says, ask the Father for what you need for today. Jesus told us that the Father knows what we need even before we ask for it. So so why ask? It's because Jesus wants us to get in the habit of trusting the Father to meet our needs. And as we share our needs with him and honor him by asking, because if we're asking, it means we believe he has the ability to meet them. We're consistently reminding ourselves that he is our provider. Rather than waking up every morning, being concerned about your daily needs and logging straight into your computer to check your balance on your bank account. Jesus says, hey, you should really be checking in with me and asking me to take care of you for today. And there's something about asking God to take care of you for today, which grows an even greater level of trust than praying for a longer period of time. Because when you ask him to take care of you today, that's showing faith and confidence that when you pray the same thing tomorrow, he'll do it again tomorrow and the next day and the next day. Because Jesus is thinking, well, I mean, we're going to be talking again tomorrow, right? Right? So just ask me then. Just ask me then. Our Father doesn't need reminding of anything, but we need reminding that he's our provider. Jesus tells us to live in the moment and trust him for today. He doesn't say the next month, the next year. The reality is that prayer really is our greatest need. We need to be connected to our Father on a daily basis. He doesn't need us, but man, do we need him. Not once a month, but every single day. Do you remember during the temptation of Jesus when after fasting for 40 days, he's hungry, Satan comes to him, tempts him, and says, defy the will of the Father by turning these stones into bread. Just make something for yourself to eat. What does Jesus say in response to Satan? He says, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. 
In that moment, Jesus is saying, yes, I have a literal physical need, but above that is my need to hear from God today. I have a need for that. So when we pray for our daily bread, we're not just asking for our material needs. We're asking God for everything we need today, materially, physically, emotionally, spiritually, all of it. We're asking him, God, give me what I need to be full today in every sense of the word. Fourthly, we see God's pardon beginning in verse 12, his pardon. He tells us to pray, forgive us our debts. I love that right in the middle of this beautiful sacred prayer is the reminder that we all need forgiveness. Jesus doesn't tell us to pray something like, Lord, keep me humble, keep my pride in check. He says, pray for forgiveness. Because if you can recognize every day that you need forgiveness every day, he says, well, your your pride's not going to be a problem. Your ego's not going to be a problem. As long as you remember that you need me every single day day that'll keep you humble he says forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors when we accept and receive the forgiveness of jesus do you realize we give up the right to hold unforgiveness against others we don't have that right anymore we forfeited that right when we received forgiveness from jesus we forgive others because we're forgiven and we don't want to live as hypocrites I believe there's incredible, incredible power in our confession, the words that we speak. Forgiveness is not a feeling. It's a decision. Some of you really need to hear that today. It is not a feeling. It is a decision. You might still be incredibly mad at the person that you've forgiven, but forgiving them means when their name comes up in your mind or comes up in your memory, you look through your memory bank and you say through gritted teeth, I don't hold anything against them. They don't owe me anything. You might still be mad, but you can say, listen, they don't owe me a debt. There's nothing there. I've forgiven them. And as you speak that out, sometimes you'll have to do it a lot. I believe you'll find the Holy Spirit releasing forgiveness through you. Remember what James wrote about the power of our words. He said, indeed, we put bits in horses' mouths that they may obey us, and we turn their whole body Look also at ships. Although they are so large and are driven by fierce winds, they are turned by a very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. Even so, the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire kindles. There's great power in our words. Even when we don't feel it, forgiveness is a choice. If you will steer your words toward forgiveness the whole ship, your whole being will turn in that direction. I promise that's how it works. Fifthly, we see God's protection. Verse 13, he says, pray and do not lead us into temptation. The word temptation doesn't mean a drawing into sin. It really means testing. And although scripture records that Abraham was tempted with a knife in his hand and his son on the altar in Genesis the temptation wasn't to do evil. It wasn't tempting for him to kill his son. It was a testing. James 1, it says that God cannot be tempted with evil, and he doesn't tempt any man with evil. God doesn't tempt you. What Jesus is teaching us to pray is he's saying, do not lead us into testing. And if you know your Bible, some of you are going to go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Isn't testing good? Doesn't it produce perseverance? Shouldn't we count it all as joy when we face trials, knowing that it produces patience in us? Doesn't Peter say that it, it will purify us like gold in the fire? Why would we pray, don't lead us into testing? The answer is simply humility. 
Because which of us would stand up here today and say, Lord, test me. I'm good to go. Test me. I'm going to rock it out. going to kill it. You'd be a fool to say that. A fool. So in humility, we constantly pray, please don't lead me into testing. Because we also realize that if we're being tested, it's because we need to be tested. And if I've prayed, Lord, lead us not into temptation, and God then takes me through testing, you can embrace it joyfully, knowing that he's not going to test you above what you can stand, and the result will be a stronger, more mature faith. He says, pray, deliver us from the evil one. It's the evil one. That's what the original language says. Satan is real, and we need God's protection. In places like Ephesians 6, we learn all about the armor of God and the way God's equipped us to fight our adversary, the devil. And Jesus doesn't tell us to pray this so that we would be scared. He wants us to be vigilant and never forget that we have an enemy who's out to destroy us. And when we remember that, when we remember that we're not fighting people or circumstances, but a spiritual enemy, then we're on alert and can more easily recognize the schemes of Satan in our lives. You can have the greatest weapons at your disposal, but if you forget you are in a war, you are in a dangerous, dangerous position. That's why we pray to our Heavenly Father, deliver us from the evil one. And now we reach the end of the Lord's Prayer. Sixthly, we see God's preeminence. We see his preeminence. To this day, I can barely speak this last line out loud without being shaken to my core by, by, by the glory of God because I believe this last line is what every atom, every molecule, every ounce of matter in the entire universe is proclaiming day after day. This is the cry of all creation. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. I love that because Jesus tells us to end our prayer with an emphatic statement of the facts that are and will never cease to be. Jesus says, I want you to end this prayer by declaring reality. That's what this is. I want you to declare the reality that is really happening right now all around us. These are the unchangeable truths that govern all reality. The literal meaning in the original language of this last line would be something like, you are the king of kings and everything is yours. You are the one who has matchless power and you are the point that honor, praise, and worship ultimately flows to. You're everything. And then the literal translation of the word amen is simply, so be it. So be it. This is your last fill-in. God does not need our worship, but we need to worship. He doesn't need our worship, but we need to worship. There's power in opening your heart, in lifting your hands as a sign of blessing to God and saying, yours is the kingdom, the power and the glory forever. That'll get your mind right in a hurry. The Lord's Prayer is made up of 65 profoundly simple and simply profound words. You can meditate on this prayer for hours, days, months, years, the rest of your life but I encourage you to appropriate this prayer right now, to make it your own, to, to build it into your life. I believe it's, it's a sacrament given to us by God in those moments where we just need to connect with God. We don't even know what to pray. Jesus says, listen, just focus on me and pray this. The right line of this is gonna hop out to you. It's gonna connect with you. 
Keep this in your tool belt. Use it every day. I think you'll find a, a whole nother dimension to your walk with the Lord when you can have a go-to to pray in any situation. In conclusion, this is what we want to say in wrapping this up. We're obligated to forgive the debts that anybody owes us. We're obligated to pray for our enemies without exception. So in this coming time of worship, I would encourage you to search your own heart, examine yourself, and ask the question, is there somebody that I'm holding unforgiveness against? Is there someone in my mind when their name comes up, I view them as owing me a debt? You owe me. You've wronged me. Jesus says, you've got to let that go. You've got to choose to forgive. I don't care how you feel. You've got to choose to forgive. You've got to speak forgiveness and trust that the Holy Spirit is going to bring healing to those wounds. Remember, you're the one in prison, not them. It's you. It's like drinking poison and expecting the other person to drop dead. It just doesn't work. You're the one being poisoned. So ask God to help you if you need to do that. And then maybe take some time and just read that prayer, the Lord's Prayer. Pray it over. Build it into your life. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? Father, thank you so much for the forgiveness that you have poured out on us. God, you have canceled our debts. You have cast our sins, your word says, into the sea of your forgetfulness. That a God who remembers everything has somehow chosen to forget our sins. God, when we cross your mind, we don't owe you anything. Our debt has been cleared by Jesus on the cross. So I pray that you would empower us by your Holy Spirit to forgive as you have forgiven us. That we would turn around and offer just a fraction to others of what you have done for us. Help us to forgive where we need to do that. I pray especially for the person right now who feels just like they can't. God, would you break through that this morning and allow them to walk out of here free in Jesus' name. Father, we do pray this morning that your name would be glorified, that you would be honored in everything that we do. Help us to remember the gift of the Lord's Prayer that you've given us, God, to get our mind focused on you in every situation. We love you. It's in your name we pray, Father. Amen.